Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. On this podcast, we bounce around from topic to topic as it relates to how to perform better. And from time to time, you'll see that I get into weeds about a number of different topics. These can include things like movement, nutrition, and of course, anxiety. And anxiety is something that I've been researching for a number of years now and specifically looking at why is it such an intricate part of the human condition for people like entrepreneurs. My guest today is a person that I would call a teacher from afar, meaning that he has written several books that I find very, very valuable on this topic. Joseph E. Ledoux, PhD, is a professor of neuroscience, psychology, psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry at New York University. He's the director of the Emotional Brain Institute and has written numerous books, including The Emotional Brain, Synaptic Self, and Anxious. Joseph Ledoux has received so many awards that it would take me a while to to read this, but his book, Anxious, received the 2016 William James Book Award from the American Psychological Association. Our conversation today is predominantly related to the contents of that book, and we look at things like amygdala's The Fear Center. We talk about his band, The Amygdaloids. We look at his three-part construction for how to deal with anxiety and how that differs from traditional therapeutic forms. And finally, we talk about consciousness and some of Joseph Ledoux's current work around the topic. You can find all of the show notes to this one at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Ledoux. That's L-E-D-O-U-X. I look forward to your feedback on my amazing conversation with Dr. Joseph Ledoux. There are some things I can't explain. For one, the Big Bang. Among the technology devices that seem to work in my office, the Somovedic is top among those. We've had Jiraj Kachar on the show before, and he's walked through how the Somovedic works with things like crystals, various metals, etc. But I know when I plug it in my office, there's a subtle uplift in the energy uh, that I feel. Among the claims that Somovedic makes, it helps protect you from 5G. It also helps structure water. And what I look at is really the end result. For me, I just feel better. I feel more focused and I have higher levels of energy. So I enjoy it. And I have the Medic Ultra Green, which is something that you guys can check out. But if you want to get yours, head on over to somovedic.com and use the code BOOMER and you're going to get yourself 10% off. Let's get back to the episode with Dr. Ledoux. Joseph, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the 2020 Amygdaloid World Tour, what's the current status on that one? <laughs> uh, well, I don't think there's... I, I really miss travel. I haven't traveled anywhere in, uh, uh, in quite a long time. I had all these things scheduled for 2020 um, in terms of uh, conferences and so forth and some amygdaloid activity with it. But 
um, I, you know, everything's been canceled step by step and it's starting to build up again so that there are all these invitations coming for May and June, mm -hmm. August. Uh, and we'll just have to see because, you know, I'm not wild about getting on a, you know, test tube uh, plane. Yeah. And seeing what happens but um you know we'll see maybe there'll be a vaccine and we'll uh, feel more comfortable about moving around in the world yeah maybe i'll make it to new york one of these days uh but i, I would love to see you guys play live but i guess going into the no more live music <laughs> what's that I, I i don't know what's going to happen to live music all the little clubs in new york that we used to be able to play and had been sort of disappearing one by one and uh there's maybe one or two left and they're you know they're closed now and nothing's happened so mm. uh let's take it in amsterdam yeah i yeah, mean I amsterdam you. we may be able to host you so it's just a matter of getting you on that tube over here to potentially to potentially play but let's see what 2021 brings uh, cool. On another topic, which is the reason why I wanted to talk to you today, uh, I've had this, I guess, lifelong fascination due to my own issues with anxiety. And when I start researching anxiety, of course, come across your work. So I'm really grateful for your time today. And I just want to start by just looking at the differences between anxiety and fear. Because I, I want to make sure that we're clear on what anxiety is before we go a little bit deeper. Okay. Well, the, I mean, the easiest way to describe it, and I think the most conventional scientific way, is that anxiety, uh, well, let's start with fear. Fear is a, uh, an experience that you're having uh, to an immediately present stimulus. And anxiety is a worry about something that hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, but the fact is that as soon as you're in a dangerous situation, there's something threatening at your feet, say a snake or you know, a mugger or you know, whatever that, that bothers you, um, the, you, are, you have the sudden fear that's brought upon by the sudden arrival of, of danger, uh, but that almost instantly turns into anxiety about worry about what that thing is going to do. And will you be okay when it does it? Uh, say it's a snake. You know, if can you find a doctor? Let's say walking in the woods, there's a snake and bites you. Uh, can you find a doctor? Will he have the anecdote? And on and on. So uh, anxiety and fear are kind of conjoined twins. As soon as fear starts, it turns into anxiety. But even anxiety morphs into fear because you start worrying about something and you see threats out there that then elicit fear in you. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a big happy family in a sense. <laughs> it makes you very unhappy sometimes. So let's talk about the the amygdala here for a second because we alluded to earlier your band, the amygdaloids. But also in your book, Anxious, you talk about – perhaps a misunderstanding of what we classically think of the role of the amygdala is. And so right. it just in terms of the amygdala, do you mind just explaining sort of where it is in the brain and what we thought the role is and now what you foresee the role of the amygdala is in right. terms of fear and anxiety? Okay. Just to, for a point of disclosure, I have a very minority uh, view on this whole topic, mm. uh, but you know, I think there's some value to it. So I'll, tell you what it's about well first of all the um 
you know, the amygdala is kind of easy to imagine where it is because, you know, let's say you just drive an arrow through one of your eyes and an arrow through one of your ears on the same side, where they would meet would be kind of roughly in that spot. Not exactly, but gives you a rough idea. It's kind of behind your ear and behind your eyes there. Move a little bit towards the center. Not all the way, I'm just kind of like in a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> it's in the part of the brain called the temporal lobe. And it's in the part of the temporal lobe called the medial temporal lobe. So if we think of the, the brain as like a hot dog bun where the two pieces are together and you pull them apart and the white untoasted part on the inside is where the medial part of the brain is, the medial uh, cerebral cortex. So on the outside here, uh, you have the brown toasty part. That's the newer part of the cerebral cortex where you know the, we have our... Uh, conscious thoughts and perceptions and all that good stuff. And then on the medial side of more, but traditionally what are thought to be older areas, but it's a little bit of a misleading thing to call those new and old. Uh, it's kind of an antiquated terminology that was carried forth from the 19th century. Um, but there, I think it's better to think of those as um, areas that, that have um, how shall we put it? Well, the, 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 the cortical areas are in general involved in our higher cognitive processes, uh, like even the medial areas, which used to be the part of the so-called limbic system mm -hmm. and thought to be like the center of emotion and all of that. Those medial areas are involved in many of our cognitive processes. There are uh, the anterior cingulate cortex, for example, is involved in attention and um, uh, cognitive control. Uh, the medial prefrontal cortex is involved in uh, cognitive schema. Uh, other areas over there on the medial and the medial cortex are involved in self-representation. Um, in the, the hippocampus, which is part of the medial uh, temporal lobe rather than prefrontal cortex, the medial temporal lobe, it's involved in uh, storing our most complex uh, cognitive memories. So the, the limbic system idea, which started out as a theory about emotion, uh, is really, you know, it was, a, it was a kind of misdirection about what those older, so-called older areas uh, were doing. The, media, the, uh, the, the limbic cortex, the, all those medial areas, do a lot in cognition, but the limbic system theory said they were only involved in emotion, not cognition. So it's, it's kind of like uh, an antiquated idea. But it got, you know, it was a clever idea. It was very popular. And once something gets in the, science, the mind of the scientists and the minds of the public and so forth, it's very, very hard to change it. Mm -hmm. So we're stuck with this limbic system idea, which I think is wrong in terms of emotion. There is, we can call that area of the medial cortex and areas like the amygdala and so forth that are connected with it, uh, limbic areas but we just don't want to call it a limbic system because it does, it's not doing one thing like a system would do. It's not like the visual system helps you see the limbic system. It's involved in cognition. It's got some contributions to behavioral regulation, to visceral control, a lot of stuff, but it's not really where our emotions are made per se. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh... Before we go a little bit deeper into this, I, I just am always curious how somebody like yourself, you know, there's so many different aspects of, of the brain that somebody can study, but you got, 
you dove quite deep and even wrote a book on anxiety. What made you interested in this? Well, you know, I, I got started, uh, I don't know how deep to go into how I got started, but let's start with like a, a direct answer to your mm. question. So in the 19, early 1980s, um, I uh, had been, in the 70s, I had been doing human research on so-called split-brain patients. And we can talk about that because it's very interesting, mm -hmm. but let's answer your question first. Um, and the, the research I was doing on, the, on, the, on those patients led me to an interest in emotion and the role of cognition in emotion. Um, so again, we can talk about that later, but let's, that's why I turned to um, uh, animal studies to study emotion because there were no good techniques to study the human brain in 1980. So, uh, uh, I th said, well, some of these basic processes, you know, the, lim the limbic system theory, I was, I had no reason to question that back then. Uh, while the limbic system, like the amygdala and so forth, is supposedly involved in these emotional responses, these are very kind of primitive responses. But I viewed them as unconscious responses. So what the amygdala was doing was processing danger and controlling behavior and physiology in an unconscious way. Mm -hmm. Conscious fear, I always thought of, because of that work that I haven't discussed yet about the split brain patients, led me to the idea that consciousness uh, it often involves an interpretation of the situation that we're in. And so in a dangerous situation, we consciously would experience the fear at, uh, through our, these higher cortical areas, um, but we would be behaviorally controlling uh, our responses through the amygdala and these subcortical areas of the medial cortex there uh, that are gonna generate, you know, like freezing behavior and increases in heart rate and blood pressure. So I said, I can study these kinds of primitive behaviors like freezing and, and physiological changes in animals because it's likely that those parts of the brain involved um, have, have been conserved in mammalian evolution. Um, but if I want to study the experience of emotion, I have to study that in a human mm -hmm. because of the, the cerebral cortex uh, areas that I, I thought were involved would be relatively new in evolution. So um, I started studying uh, rats and, and studying how they detect and respond to danger. Uh, again, thinking of that as an unconscious process. In 1996, I summarized the work I'd been doing. That work had taken me to the amygdala. I didn't go looking for the amygdala. The, the research took me there because I started out asking, how does a, a sound that's paired with a shock change the value of the, shock, of the, of the sound? The shock changes the value of the sound when they're associated. And then that sound goes into your ear, obviously, mm -hmm. and can, goes through your auditory system and somehow goes through the brain in a way that causes the rat to freeze and its blood pressure and heart rate to increase and stress hormones to be released. So I wanted to know how that flow through the brain took place. And at the time, there were new techniques available for mapping pathways in the brains of animals. So we're able to, for example, make a lesion in those auditory areas and you know, different groups of animals, uh, lesion in one area, lesion in another area. And what we found was that the auditory stimulus had to uh, would, would didn't have to go all the way to the auditory cortex. 
And that was surprising because everybody thought the auditory cortex would be involved in any psychologically meaningful kind of auditory response. Um, so what we found was that it, it had to go to the next level down, which is the auditory thalamus. And when we put these tracing chemicals in the auditory thalamus, sure enough, it went to the auditory cortex. That, that was expected. But it also went to the amygdala. Mm -hmm. So that told us that the auditory thalamus could connect directly with the amygdala. And so we lesioned the amygdala, and it did the same thing as lesions of the auditory thalamus. It prevented the learning conditioning from taking place. And from there, we were able to work out which parts of the amygdala were involved and how the, uh, the information flew, flowed through the amygdala, how it came out to different response systems to control behavior with one response, to control the parasympathetic nervous system with another response, uh, the sympathetic nervous system with another output pathway, mm -hmm. and then finally the stress hormone system through even another pathway. So the amygdala was kind of a funnel through which all of the environmental information from the senses would be channeled, uh, and then a kind of um, uh, floodgate with all that all these responses would go down different rivers to, to flow out. Mm. So that I, I wrote about all that in uh, the Emotional Brain in 1996. Um, that book was very successful. It's still in print after all these years. Mm -hmm. How many years has that been? I don't know, like 24. Yeah, 24. So. Yeah. Um, and so um, that that uh, that led me to continue doing research. And, and I wrote another book in 2002 called Synaptic Self that took the uh, basic ideas about the circuitry and now started asking questions about the plasticity mm -hmm. and how all of that connectivity would put uh, allow us to put ourselves together as a coherent uh, whole involving you know, uh, implicit or unconscious aspects of who we are as well as the more conscious aspects. Mm -hmm. And then I you know, didn't write books again until 2015 when I wrote Anxious, uh, which was to pursue one of the threads that had become more important in my work, which was the clinical thread. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the possibility of using all this research about the brain and uh, threat detection and so forth to better understand and possibly uh, suggest how to treat fear and anxiety. So that, that's where we got to, uh, that's how I got to anxious. So let's talk about that role of split brains um, sure. here because I'm very curious, like, what did you observe in studying split brains that that kind of changed your thinking, if you will? Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I was um, a green graduate student at that time. I just coming into the field. Mm -hmm. I had no uh, prior real experience in science, mm -hmm. or uh, uh, took no courses in, in any kind of science in college or high school. Maybe a chemistry course here or there, or something. But you know, not never was inclined so much towards science um but uh, that, that's fascinating and now you're one of the thought leaders in the field <laughs> <laughs> but, you know life life takes you in different uh, directions yeah, so uh, i was um studying actually uh business administration i had two degrees in business um from louisiana state university that sounds familiar <laughs> and the process of uh of uh, getting the master's degree, um, I was taking a course, you know, I was getting interested in kind of like consumer psychology, why consumers buy stuff. Mm -hmm. and I was trying to learn more about the mind and psychology and behavior and so forth. And the, um, I took this 
course with a guy who was studying uh, refrains and um, um, you know and learning of memory. And you know, I had no idea you could actually study the brain. So that was like eye-opening. I said, I said, well, can I work in your lab? And he said, sure. And so I worked in his lab a bit. We published a couple of papers together. Um, and I said, you know, I think I want to like do this for my career. And so after I finished the master's, I applied to graduate programs, was admitted at the State University of New York at Stony Brook out of Long Island. So your master's and was in business or was your master's? Yeah, marketing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I ended up out on Long Island at, uh, at Stony Brook mm -hmm. and met a professor there named Michael Gazaniga, who had done all this split brain work um, in California for his PhD 10 years earlier. And he said, sure, you can work in the lab. And so I, I started testing split brain patients with him. And, you know, the, the uh, kind of standard story with those patients is they have epilepsy. They're, uh, none of the methods or treatments have been working. Mm -hmm. So they try something else. And the most radical thing that was tried was this kind of like splitting of the brain yeah. down the middle to uh, prevent information from crossing between the two sides. Um, and that seemed to help medications control the seizures. Not sure who first came up with that idea and why they thought that was a good idea, but uh, yeah, it's kind of along the lines of things like um, what was sort of uh, when we used to drill into brains and that kind of stuff, right? That it just seems seems like a very far fetched idea, but it did, I mean, yeah, but the, these patients, you know, were desperate. Uh, many of them, you know, teenagers who had been living for years in isolation and having seizures so bad that families would have to hold them down on a mattress mm -hmm. and nothing was was helping and so the families decided well let's you know this is no life so let's see if we can have some kind of life mm -hmm. uh, for the child if if this is what we do um and the the general consequences are ra rather mild in terms of everyday life of the surgery mm. um which is kind of surprising, but um, yeah. anyway, so the, the brain is split and the, the original studies showed that, you know, if you present a stimulus to the left visual field, that goes to the right hemisphere and the right hemisphere doesn't have language. So the left hemisphere normally would be able to talk about it because information crosses over. Uh, but uh, is, am I, is my left and right crossed? I think it is on the video there. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. anyway. So um, the the uh, information going into the, the left side of space goes to the right hemisphere. No language there. Left language is in the left hemisphere. So the uh, left hemisphere speaks uh, and, and comprehends. But the right hemisphere is holding the information that it needs to talk about. So when you ask the patient, what did you see? The patient says, I didn't see anything. But if you then... Um, let's say you, you had shown a picture of an apple to the left visual field. Mm -hmm. The patient's left hand connected to the right hemisphere can reach in a bag, fondle several objects and pull the apple out. So the right hemisphere perceived the stimulus and could control the behavior, but it couldn't talk about it. So the big question was, you know, is there like a conscious mind over there in the right hemisphere, or is it just more like a kind of stimulus response machine? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and because it couldn't talk, you really couldn't uh, answer that question. But in, for my dissertation, uh, we were studying a patient that we had kind of, in the process, discovered could read in his right hemisphere, even though he could only talk. He could read and talk out of the left, but in the right, he could only read. Mm -hmm. But that was an opportunity to probe the right hemisphere with kind of verbal questions about who he was and you know, what's going on over there, uh, which had never been possible without uh, any kind of access to a, a language uh, communication system over there. So we would put information in the left side of uh, the, his visual world, uh, flash a, a picture on the screen that would have letters which said, for example, who are you? And so then we had a, a, a set of Scrabble letters that we arranged out there and he would systematically pull out the letters P-A-U-L with his left hand to spell his name, Paul. Mm -hmm. So here we had a right hemisphere that couldn't talk, um, could respond to stimuli, but he knew his name. So obviously he had a kind of sense of self over there. And we were able to ask the right hemisphere, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And it said it wanted to be a race car driver, spelling out with the Scrabble mm -hmm. letters. Um, meanwhile, the left hemisphere, when you talk to it, said, well, he wanted to be an architect, a draftsman. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to make too big a deal out of these little observations because they are just observations. But the suggestion was that in this mind, in this brain, we had two conscious realms, right? One side, they both knew who they were. They were both Paul because they had lived and heard that name and knew how to associate it with their self. Um, but one side had a different goal in life than the other side. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, you know, that was pretty dramatic. And then the, uh, the last study I'll describe is one in which we put simultaneously a stimulus on each side of the screen. And on um, one side was a, um, uh, a picture of some snowy setting. It's, this was, uh, the kid lived in Vermont, so used to seeing snow. Mm -hmm. So there was a snow scene in the left, in the left side. Uh, and on the right side was a, a, a picture of a chicken, mm -hmm. or a chicken claw, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so the two hemispheres each saw a different picture. And so, uh, but each hand then pointed to a different thing. So the left hand connected to the right hemisphere, which saw the snow scene, pointed to a shovel. And the right hand connected to the left hemisphere, which saw a chicken claw pointed to a chicken. Mm -hmm. And he said, why'd you do that? Now you're talking to the left hemisphere, because that's the, I mean, the one that's the one that's going to respond verbally. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I saw a chicken claw, so I pointed to the chicken. That all matches. Um, but you need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed. Mm -hmm. So the left, the left, the right hemisphere pointed to the shovel because of the snow scene that it saw. Mm -hmm. But the left hemisphere, seeing the person's own behavior, his own behavior, so he's pointing to a shovel, and he had just said, "You know, I'm, I pointed to the chicken because of the chicken claw." Mm -hmm. Put it together and said, "We need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed." He was a country boy, so he generated a narrative on the spot to make his behavior make sense. Mm -hmm. And so I, 
you know, after we were uh, we we were up in Vermont. We we had a trailer that we'd go up with a testing trailer, and then so we'd see these patients. Then at night we go stay in a motel somewhere, but then we go to dinner somewhere and have some drinks and go to the bar and you know have a good time and talk about it. And we said, you know, I think Mike probably said it because you know as a, I was pretty green. I didn't you know, just didn't feel and all this was new. But Mike said something like, "Well, you know, that's interesting. Maybe that's how we. Uh, that's what goes on all the time. We generate behaviors non-consciously, unconsciously, mm-hmm. and then you know that's very disturbing. If your your conscious mind sees it, it's not controlling your behavior." So we had this kind of cognitive dissonance mechanism involved in consciousness that tells a story, a narrative that makes your life make sense. You're doing all these things all the time that don't, that you don't know necessarily why you do them. You just know that you do them and you generate a narrative to account for that. So that was, uh, that was a big deal uh, in terms of my entire career because I've been talking about that afternoon in Vermont ever since in terms of you know how emotions are made. Emotions are cognitive interpretations or narrations of unconscious processes that uh, are controlling our behavior and physiology and so forth. So that's, that's how all the dots came together. Uh, but the, one of the other nights at the bar, Mike said, you know, we were talking about emotions being a possible kind of uh, source of this unconscious information that we need to explain. And so, you know, there's not a lot of research going on in, in the neuroscience of emotion right now. You ought to consider that. I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. And so that's when I decided to turn to rats because there were no good studies, no ways to study humans uh, uh, at the time, no fMRI or anything like that. You just said occasionally you'd have some interesting patients that come along, but it could be a long wait between this interesting patient and the next one. All right. So there's a natural question that comes here. If we're all producing this narrative to justify maybe some dissonance or, or some um, sub unconscious actions that we're taking or unconscious things that are happening, can we rewrite the narrative? And I guess part two of that question is something that you mentioned in the book that uh, we revert to a mean when it comes to anxiety. And so if we revert to a mean, is there any point in trying to address it in the first place? We, we revert to a what? Uh, a mean with anxiety. So let's say a person has an average level of anxiety. Oh, a mean. Yeah. Okay, yeah, right, right. So the kind of a set point of anxiety. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I guess, I, I mean, right. maybe if we okay. break it down, part A being, uh, can we rewrite that narrative? And Yeah, so, the, I mean, the um, that, that's what, you know, that's why people go to the therapy mm-hmm. to, Much like the CBD world, it seems like there's a ton of red light companies out there. And how do you differentiate between them? Well, one of the things that I appreciate with numerous of the technology companies that I deal with is a willingness to test their product versus the competition. And those that are willing to test the product and also produce the results are among some of my favorite in the industry. And so I like to look at quality control among these products. And when it comes to red light, one of my top devices is the sauna space photon, which is actually shining on my face right now. And the sauna space photon emits zero EMF. It's near infrared light. And in this time of the year where it's pretty cold 
all day long, as well as dark very, very early. The photon serves as just sort of a nice warming feeling over the course of the day because it is incandescent light. And so if you want to get yours, head on over to saunaspace.com, use the code BOOMER. They're going to give you 5% off, uh, which is pretty awesome. But again, it's one of my favorite devices, the Photon. I can travel with it. I can put it on areas of need, and I'm using it every single day. So head on over to saunaspace.com and use the code BOOMER for a nice little discount. Let's get back to the show. Rewrite their narrative or to change the stuff that's making them have a narrative. And I think that, um, you know, I, I kind of, I, at the end of Anxious, I was sort of coming to, you know, I didn't quite make it uh, all the way in terms of my conception of what I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. But in there, if you read like between the lines and the tea leaves, there's the hint of an approach to therapy, uh, which suggests that you have to first tame the amygdala. Mm-hmm. And prevent it from producing the behavioral responses and the hyperarousal and all of that uh, that, that gets in the way. Um, and then once you do that, you need to then tame the hippocampus to alter your cognitive memories about your relationship to these kinds of stimulating situations. And then once you've done that, you've got a brain that's prepared to do talk therapy. Now, you know, I think probably most therapists do those three things, Mm -hmm. but because they don't necessarily kind of separate them and sequence them that way, it might, that may be why it's not quite as effective as it could be. Because, you know, if you don't get rid of the amygdala and the arousal that it produces, no matter how much you change beliefs and memories and so forth, that arousal will kind of keep them coming back. Mm -hmm. And so um, you really got to, get that amygdala under control uh, so that the beliefs that you change can stay changed. And then the, the conscious experiences that, that result from all of that, that you talk about through the, the, um, uh, in the regular talk therapy, need to be consolidated without the disruption that's caused by all this arousal and the reactivation of the memories and all of that. So, uh, you know, I don't know how practical it is to actually pull that off in any kind of situation uh, except simple phobias. Mm -hmm. For example, you have a spider phobic patient. They don't like to do exposure therapy because it's just too stressful to see those spiders. But you can present those spiders subliminally Mm -hmm. so that they go directly to the amygdala, but the person doesn't know they're there. So you can extinguish the amygdala by repetitive presentation of the spider over and over again. Uh, and this is hypothesis, not fact. Yeah. Uh, and once you've done that, then you know, then you can deal with the memories, and then you can do talk therapy. So, you know, I propose that kind of three-step sequence. Uh, I don't think anyone's actually you know tested mm-hmm. it, but. Um, yeah, and I'm not a therapist, so I'm just kind of armchairing all this, but kind of makes well, sense. Well, I, I, I like it, and I'm just kind of thinking about it in terms of things like uh, common fears, like public speaking or speaking to um, relatively, I guess, speaking to somebody who would be perceived as superior to you and getting that nerves. Uh, could the same framework work in those situations, or is that just yeah, I, I think to some extent. Um, let me say a couple of uh, other things. Um, 
if we if we want to do you, you asked about uh set point mm-hmm. that's what um let me okay here back step one step so um you know the way to think about all this in terms of the brain is that each symptom that a person experiences is a product of a different brain circuit mm-hmm. you know because it's a different symptom so for example avoidance behavior which is a classic problem in anxiety people avoid the situations you know hyper avoid situations that are going to trigger anxiety and so they their social life can get compromised by that mm-hmm. uh, and another problem is hyper arousal where you just feel too wired up and tense all the time um, and those two symptoms are products of you know different circuits. I mean, they, they might overlap to some extent, but, you know, for example, the amygdala is involved in, uh, in controlling freezing behavior mm-hmm. and blood pressure and the hormones and all that. So it's kind of like a reactive system, but avoidance is a more active behavior. It's a, you know, you're, you're choosing to, uh, it's more of a decision that you make about not going somewhere. You have some control over it, but you choose not to do it because you don't want the consequence. So uh, that also involves the amygdala. It also involves another area called the bed nucleus. I'm sorry, um, uh, this would be the nucleus accumbens. It's mm-hmm. uh, often associated with reward and positive stuff, but it's also involved in aversive behaviors like avoidance. So the, the um, you know, it, it's all very complicated, but you the bottom line is to think of symptoms as potentially separate targets in the brain for treatment. Mm-hmm. So you need to figure out how to what the symptoms are, and then ask what are the possible uh, brain circuits for each symptom. And even if you don't know the answer to all the brain circuitry, if you treat each symptom as a kind of uh, functional module that has to be changed, um, then it, it, it opens up a different perspective uh, on the thing rather than like you've got a thing called anxiety and you can change all of that at once. You got to, these are, anxiety is a, a, a social construct. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing, you know, it's something we made up. Um, and so we're not going to find anxiety in the brain. Same thing with fear. We're not going to find fear, a fear circuit in the brain or an anxiety circuit or a depression circuit. These are just labels for symptoms. I mean, if you go to a therapist uh, and have depression, you could have depression in seven or eight or maybe a hundred different ways, depending on which things get checked mm-hmm. off on the checklist. Uh, <clears throat> so, the, you know, let's say you've got a PTSD there. There may be a uh, hundred symptoms of PTSD. I don't know how many of them. Mm-hmm. A bunch of symptoms of PTSD. And you only need like maybe three to count as having PTSD. Mm-hmm. You could have, let's say there are three Let's say there are 10 symptoms and you need to have three. Those 10 things can be combined in a lot of different ways to give rise to, quote, PTSD. So it's not a thing. It's just a collection of symptoms that have been kind of socially grouped together by a group of psychiatrists that call it that. So if I'm to approach this more with like a systematic way and kind of an N of one approach and just sort of look at my own anxieties around, let's say, maybe public speaking or this fear of, superior people, quote unquote, superior people. The right way for me to approach it would be to look at some of those symptoms like getting warmer or sweating while public speaking first 
and, and associating that with the the brain circuit rather than jumping immediately to the take a pill for my ill kind of situations. Do I have that right? Uh, what would jumping to what? what uh, I guess typical? you know. <laughs> Um, for lack of a better, jumping like right into benzodiazepines, for instance, and I, right. I don't know how much you can comment on that, but yes, okay. So let's take uh, you know some of these physiological symptoms. Mm-hmm. We know those are controlled by the autonomic nervous mm-hmm. system, and the um, what we also know is that there is you know this is it's a kind of overstatement, um, oversimplification that uh, ended up in in the scientific literature and probably has been, again, further oversimplified in the lay literature. But the parasympathetic component of the um, autonomic nervous system has some countervailing force over the sympathetic. So the sympathetic is what drives, you know, kind of the fight, flight, "Eh." Mm -hmm. the parasympathetic can slow it down. And what the you know ancient yogis figured out without knowing anything about physiology per se, is that you know controlled breathing exercises activates the parasympathetic system, mm-hmm. and that slows down the effects of the sympathetic. So that's an that's always a really good place to start mm-hmm. because that's something everybody can do. It's just you know it's not you don't have to like jump into full-fledged meditation, just learning how to control your breath and using that. I mean, the problem with these things is they're hardest to implement when you need them the most. <laughs> but if you if you really make an effort to, uh, and I think it has to be a practice, a pra- that practice of learning to control your breathing so that you can put yourself at ease uh, in, you know, an instant or two by going through a few breaths because you've made that a routine that your body knows how to do. Mm-hmm. So once you do that, then you know you've kind of done the work that the some of the work that that subliminal stimulation of the amygdala was trying to do because you just turned off the arousal mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, you know that's not going to be the whole answer, but. You know, maybe we can find other kinds of things like that that um, uh, are uh, uh, helpful for the behavioral responses. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're less aroused, then you'll freeze less in a, a sudden situation because the arousal kind of locks you into the, the situation mm-hmm. because it extends over time. Um, so, it, you know, I think it all starts with kind of good breathing hygiene and being able to use that to slow you down enough to kind of take perspective and uh, slow your mind down as well as your body and then make decisions about what can I do next? Um, And, you know, I'm kind of, I work at the level of this kind of behavior and physiology. Mm -hmm. So I'm not an expert on telling you what to do to, you know, fix the more complicated stuff. Um, But uh, I do think that, um, you know, that's one way to change your set point, right? Is to lower the arousal so that the other stuff can be uh, more effectively changed. I mean, that's what therapy is, is kind of set point adjustment. Mm-hmm. And um, once you, if you can lower your arousal, then therapy can help you uh, make the cognitive changes you need to uh, 
be less uh, alert to stimuli and to be um, more concerned with, uh, to be more aware of when you need to breathe and so forth. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, this is all BS because I'm just talking out of <laughs> Well, no, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I think just, you know, what, what is exciting to me about what you said there is that we can kind of reset the set point, if you will, which is means that there, there is hope for people out there who are battling stuff like this. Uh, I mean, the set point idea when I wrote about, I think I found out later that, you know, others have talked about mm-hmm. this. Uh, I talked about it in the beginning of, of anxious. Um, <clears throat> yeah, what I found in myself was that, uh, if, um, I, some, I'm anxious about something and for whatever reason, something I've done or the world changed or whatever, that anxiety goes away. I just like made room for another one to come in. Right? <laughs> yeah. So that was the idea that we, we, wherever you are on that set point, uh, you move one out and the next one comes up gotcha. and if you don't, if you're not a terribly anxious person, then, you know, it's, it's not, it's low, mm-hmm. but if you're anxious, then you got more of those. To you're always going to search point. for something to fill in. You know. uh, Your point. I mean, I think that's the idea yeah. that we each have a level. And I guess the goal of therapy should be thought of is to modify that, uh, where we are on that level mm-hmm. from one goal. Uh, question for you, Joseph, is because there's a lot of emerging, I guess, research and work being done in the world of psychedelics and, uh, if you're willing to pontificate on it, just in terms of how you see psychedelics and their role potentially for things like anxiety, um, you know, I don't, I don't really, I haven't followed that, so I don't really know much about it. Um, I think, you know, from what I've seen, there looks like they're promising approaches, uh, but mm-hmm. I can't claim any expertise and experience in that. Okay. Going back to, we can wrap up now with a just question on consciousness because you brought it up earlier. And I know consciousness is one of these emerging fields and there's still a lot we don't know. Where do you think we are in terms of the continuum of understanding consciousness and perhaps using it as a tool to, um, to address anxiety, if you think so? Well, I think that you know one of the big disconnects in the kind of academic approach to things has been, um, it's been a kind of resurgence of interest in consciousness and uh, through philosophy and and cognitive science. Um, But that has totally ignored uh, two things that are near and dear to me. One is memory Mm -hmm. and the other is uh, emotion. Um, And so it's, it's a bit mysterious that like, you know, all of the work on consciousness that gets any kind of uh, academic attention has been uh, on visual perception. You know, how do we see color red? I mean, okay, that's that's interesting and important. But what people care about is, you know, how do our experiences come about? What how, what about those memories that you know we want them? That we we love good memories and we hate bad ones and. Um, so how, but where do those experiences come from? How do we remember our childhood and how do we envision our future uh, as emotional beings? And that just hasn't been a major topic in the science of consciousness. And that's what I've been trying to introduce and bring into that field. Uh, it's been a slow, pro- a slow uh, process because 
the field is is so focused on visual perception, um, mm -hmm. and so that they think of it as kind of a cute, you know, outside uh, thing. I think, uh, yeah, okay, that's that's interesting. Someday we'll get to that. Um, but with a, a couple of philosophers and scientists that um, I'm close to, uh, Richard Brown, a philosopher, and Hakwan Lau, who's both a philosopher and a cognitive scientist, we've been doing a lot of writing on you know, the nature of consciousness and the role of emotion, especially fear, uh, how, how consciousness and fear, how fear is a conscious experience and how that comes about and so forth. And what we tried to do is take these standard uh, visual perception models of consciousness and just expand them by saying, okay, we have one mechanism of consciousness in our brain. It's a higher order cognitive processing system involving prefrontal cortex and some other areas of the brain, but let's say prefrontal cortex for the sake of discussion. And what it does in the case of visual perception is it, uh, it re-represents the visual stimulus color red say or a picture of an apple into something that is a higher order state a higher order representation that is the state that you become conscious of mm -hmm. um, it, it, because of, there's no visual experience that is simply you know color in isolation or even a visual stimulus in, in isolation our experiences are multi-dimensional, multimodal. So it can't just be visual cortex that's making visual experience. Visual experience is, you know, you're experiencing a scene, so it's very complex. And we know that scene perception involves areas like the hippocampus. So the visual, the you got to integrate, say, visual cortex and uh, object memory and the hippocampus, and also maybe some episodic memory about that scene uh, in the hippocampus as well, with that all has to be put together somewhere. And, you know, the prefrontal cortex may be where we can put all that together. And so what about emotion? Well, emotion is simply, uh, you know, your, your processing of uh, stimuli and scenes, uh, but with the addition that your you know, information, that your heart is beating faster, uh, that, that your palms are sweating, that your muscles are tense, uh, that, you have semantic memory that the thing you're looking at is a dangerous thing and maybe even episodic memories about that kind of danger in your life. And so all of that is, you know, put together as an amalgam in working memory. And out of that comes the experience. I mean, yeah, so it's easy to say out of that comes the experience, but every conscious experience up until the last fraction of a second is non-conscious. So what we can study very well scientifically is that all that non-conscious processing that we know and we can we can determine in people which of those non-conscious processes the person is experiencing by just asking them what you know did you see the apple um, and we can follow the that kind of activity that is generating the content that the report comes from uh, and when you can't give a report of what it is because you've degraded the stimulus or done it, you know, presented subliminally, you get all that processing, but it stops short of prefrontal cortex. Wow. 
Okay. Joseph, there's there's a lot we can go into there, but I want to be conscious. That's almost an entire another episode on follow-up questions. Sure, let's do another one. Uh, I want to be cognizant of your time, but thank you so much for for taking the time today to to spend uh, spend it with me and just answer a few questions. But again, would love to have you back for a round two. But where can people find out more about you, your work, all of your books? Well, uh, I think the, the easiest place is uh, my personal website, which is joseph-ledoux.com. Uh, and everything is there in one way or another, uh, including my music uh, career, such as a, <laughs> maybe that's glorifying. It's not a career. I'm with my music uh, sideline. Mm-hmm. I, I write music uh, sometimes that go with books. And all the amygdaloid songs are about mind and brain and mental disorders. I have a few side projects there um, with uh, my uh, colleague and friend Colin Dempsey, a great guitar player and player and singer, mm-hmm. uh, plays the bass in the Amygdaloids. Uh, Daniela Schiller, who's the drummer of the Amygdaloids, is uh, also a, a very well respected uh, cognitive neuroscientist. And Tyler Volk, the biologist in the band, is um, a guitar player and an environmental scientist. So, uh, yeah, we, my books are all there, my music, the press about all of this stuff, whatever blogs, you know, whole, whole nine yards. Well, we're going to link to all of it in the show notes. And Joseph, thank you again for being so generous with your time. This is a fantastic conversation and looking forward to the next one. Very nice talking to you. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. There are times when we run up on time and it seems like we're just getting into a topic. And with Dr. Ledoux, that is certainly the case. I hope to have him back soon to talk about consciousness and his latest work around that. But I really enjoyed the conversation and it shed so much light for me on things related to anxiety. If you enjoyed this one, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review because each of those reviews helps enormously with getting the word out. The show notes are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash ledoux. That's L-E-D-O-U-X. And thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Decoded Superhuman Podcast. Have an epic day, Superhumans.